0: Short play. Alex, the Lenten fast is in full swing and will continue up to Easter. What did you give up for Lent, Nick? I've decided that
1: for Lent I will take these podcast introductions more seriously, and I'm going to give up on delivering
0: funny punchlines until after Easter. Oh, so. You've been celebrating Lent for a couple of years now, right? I mean, <laughs> kudos to you for going above and beyond in the call of duty. <laughs> uh, I see what you did there. This is Swordplay. We are, we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California.
1: I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Swordplay, James chapter 5.
1: James chapter 5. We're at the final chapter of the book of James. Uh, we thank you for hanging in there with us, and here we're going to summarize the book, see how James ends his letter, and uh, we're going to dive right in. Verse 1, Come James now, says, you rich,
0: yeah, weep and right. howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, Alex, uh, talk for a minute, who are the rich that James rebukes, and what are the miseries that are coming upon them?
1: Well, first, I think it's safe to say that the rich here in this particular passage is not referring to the rich christian but rather the rich oppressors who live among their communities Uh, and we can see that in verse six he says uh, they have condemned the righteous in verse seven um, it says that uh, be patient my brethren so making a distinction between the rich oppressors and then the brethren who are supposed to be patient and we know that there are um these rich oppressors who have even visited their assemblies back in chapter 2, verse 6. Now, why would James have a section of the letter for those who are not a part of the congregation? First of all, some of the rich, as I mentioned in chapter 2, they did visit the assembly, and the letter was probably read in the midst of the assembly. If the rich visitor was there, that would have been a sobering moment, uh, especially if they are guilty of the things that James accuses them of. And how's that for a seeker-sensitive church, right? (laughs) Second, the judgment and condemnation that James rails against the oppressive uh, rich here, it's similar in tone and language to how James has already warned Christians earlier in the letter. Uh, In other words, don't fall into the same lot as these guys, who are clearly not going to find a happy ending with their riches. In my opinion, I think that these rich uh, people that James condemns here, I actually think they're probably Jewish landowners, and they're not believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And here's why I think this. You know, in the Roman Empire, 1st century AD, Jews are widespread throughout the empire. Uh, There are Jewish communities that exist almost in every town. You go to the book of Acts, when Paul goes from town to town, what does he first look for? A synagogue. There's only... Uh, one place I can remember where he doesn't find one. That's in Philippi. However, the rich Jewish elite who would have owned land, in order to do that, they would have had to have had a close connection to the Roman government because the Roman government owned all the land and they distributed it out to those who were friends of Roman officials. So here we see miseries are then upon these Jewish landowners because they are practicing the things that they know are condemned in the Law of Moses. Uh, Like withholding the wages of the laborer, Law of Moses says you can't do that. you got to pay day of. But specific miseries will especially be upon any Jew once the Jewish-Roman war breaks out in AD 67. Something I believe James will allude to in the following passage, and we'll keep elaborating. Uh, Miseries upon these Jewish landowners would have included... Losing your land, Rome takes it back. Uh, losing your wealth by confiscation, Rome takes it. Death, famine, pestilence, plague, these things are all historical reality during that Jewish Roman war, during that three and a half year period. So good luck, Jewish elite, uh, rich oppressor. Good luck keeping your Roman connections uh, once the Jews are officially at war with, with Rome. That's going to be a difficult time for them, and James, I think, will say it's going to be a, a
0: time of judgment upon them. Uh, Nick, your thoughts? No, I'm with you. Contextually, uh, it would seem that the the rich here are non-Christians. Uh, first, they are juxtaposed with the righteous person there in verse 6. Uh, also, James, um, he doesn't return to speaking to his brothers until verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. Uh James has already spoken of rich people who are not Christians, and yet they find their way into the assembly, the synagogue, um, 2.6, as you mentioned. Uh, and finally, there's a call to repentance, a call to amend your ways. And uh, if not, all that remains is judgment. And so this would seem to indicate that you rich is just a general term referring to those Uh, rich folks who are outside of the body of Christ. It should be noted here also that the the rich, they're not condemned simply because they are rich. It's because of their uh, refusal to obey the gospel and also their harsh and oppressive treatment of the righteous. Uh, That's why they are condemned uh, right here. And so uh, not all rich people are addressed here, but a specific group known to James and to his readers, and they are to literally... Weep, wailing for the miseries that are coming upon them. And I believe verses two and three give us uh, further insight as to what those miseries, those hardships that result in wretchedness, um, what those are. Three things: rotted riches, moth eating clothing, and corroded coins. And so that brings us to uh, verse two, where again, uh, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Um, Alex, how have their riches rotted, and why would James mention their clothing, their garments?
1: Yeah, I think James seems to be using real-life imagery from the practices of the oppressive uh, rich elite, and then he's taking that imagery, and he's making spiritual application out of those practices. So I think we we see the spiritual application clearly enough, uh, but there's a physical uh, image behind that spiritual application. For instance, one's garments were used as collateral when borrowing money. But the law of Moses said, ah, you have to give the garment back at the end of the day. Uh, I doubt these oppressive uh, rich Jews followed the law so closely. And so as a result, the rich man's garments will be moth-eaten, an appropriate allusion to, I think, the spiritual clothing that we all wear Uh, There are many verses in the New Testament that talk about the Christian wearing spotless white garments, Uh, but the rich, uh, these unbelieving Jewish rich oppressors, they have moth-eaten garments. That's their spiritual condition. Another example, uh, grain that was harvested was often stockpiled to drive up the market price, something done because of the... International grain market established by Rome. In other words, if you control the entire supply, then you can control the price, which benefits those who own the land and those who pay uh, taxes on the land and receive the taxes. Um, large portions of stored grain would rot, it would be wasted. but you know the profit made by what was left over, uh, that would be sold at inflated prices and that would make it worthwhile for the rich. And they're rich, so they don't have to worry about starving in the meantime, even though it did make it harder for the poor to feed themselves. And so in the same way uh, that they let the food rot in order to get rich, the rich themselves will see their riches rot and waste away. And as in every chapter of James, we find striking similarity in allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus mentions the same kind of problem Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 20 specifically, but contextually I think really that problem is in the uh, subtext of the entire or most of the entire Sermon on the Mount.
0: What are your thoughts, Nick? Well, yeah, the, the riches or the wealth uh, here I think would, would probably be all the things which one possesses which make a person rich. Uh, those are the things that are rotted. They're, it's decaying like a dead body. So all the fields, all the flocks, all the grain, all the grass, the wine, the wheat, the oil, the olive, all this stuff. Um, the supplies that would be stored in the storehouses, all of that has been and stands putrefied. Uh, is kind of what James is saying here. Your garments being moth-eaten. So those splendid and gorgeous garments which are Bought and sold for so much and laid up for show or future use, they're just they're full of holes and they're useless. And so, uh, yeah, this is this is uh severe judgment from God that is coming upon uh, those those rich who refuse to repent, refuse to obey the gospel. Uh, connected to this, verse 3 Your gold and silver have corroded, and that corrosion is an evidence against you, uh, Alex. How about this? Does that really happen? Does gold and silver really rust or corrode?
1: No, gold and silver do not rust. They do not corrode if it's pure. Uh, Raw gold, when it's mined out of the earth, it always has impurities mixed with it. That's why it's refined. So unrefined or impure gold and silver, it will corrode because it's the impurities of other non-precious metals mixed with it that rusts and corrodes. But purified gold and silver will not rust or corrode ever, which makes it the world's greatest long-term physical store of value. But in typical divine reversal fashion, the oppressive rich have chosen the worst spiritual store of value. While the Christians are being purified like gold, and yet resulting in a faith that is far more precious than gold, we get that language in first Peter one seven, and even at the beginning of James chapter one verses two through four. It's the rich who hold all of the physical gold, and yet are themselves full of impurities, and like those impurities will be destroyed upon being melted with intense fire coming from God's judgment and wrath. How's that for imagery? What do you think, Nick? <laughs> um,
0: you know, I also thought, yeah, gold, gold and silver wouldn't rust, uh, even if they could, in the hands of the rich, because they're likely to put them, put those things to work for them, uh, get them to to make more money for them, and so. Uh, I like what uh, Lenski says in his comments on this passage. He says the whole passage is exalted and is worded in Hebraic parallelism. When James says that gold and silver rust. He becomes purposely paradoxical when his words are understood literally. Hence, the real meaning of the metaphor strikes the mind forcibly. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right, the, the fire of divine wrath and judgment coming upon them.
1: <clears throat> well, Nick, we have a thread of statements from verse 3, 5, 7, 8, and 9. And these statements um, talk about the last days, the day of the Lord, that begs the question, was James's audience really living in the last days?
0: Yeah, last days, days of slaughter, um, coming to the Lord, coming to the Lord is at hand, um, the judges standing at the door, all these phrases that show up uh, throughout this section. Uh, there in verse 3, in the last days, uh, those would have been the days following Jesus' earthly ministry and those days which precede His final coming— Um, But also, I mean, God is going to judge the rich uh, in time. It had to mean something in their day and have application immediately. And so that's why uh, there you see James talk about in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand, the judge is standing at the door. The judgment of God is so near that James can say the judge is standing right at the door. It's a very real and imminent judgment from the judge. Uh, that's coming, and it's undeniable um, that that this is something that uh, is is portrayed in Scripture. No doubt that uh, James is very deliberate in the language that he uses to exhort his brethren, conjures up these images from their Old Testament of Israel murmuring in the wilderness. Um, even it seems perhaps alluding to. Uh, the question of Abraham in Genesis 18.25, Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? And if that were not enough, uh, perhaps uh, there are allusions here to uh, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 32. <clears throat> um, alluded uh, could be alluded to here, God, he knew his people would grumble against him in the wilderness, And the time when their foot shall slip is going to come, he says in verse 35. And so therefore Moses says, the Lord, Yahweh, will judge his people, uh, 32, 36, uh, as it reads in the NIV. So over and over, God is pictured as judge of those who uh, grumble. And uh, that may be what's in back of what James is talking about here. Uh, especially when we get later on, verse 9, do not grumble against one another because the judge is standing at the door. So you don't want to grumble. Uh, And this is applicable not only for the rich in the context, but also for God's people. Uh, So that's a bit what I see here. Uh, Alex, what do you see?
1: Yeah, so verse 3 says, uh, last days, verse 5, the day of slaughter, verse 7, coming of the Lord, verse 8, the Lord is near, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. I mean, James is painting a picture that is very imminent. There's no uh, way of getting around it. Um, I have a hard time myself seeing this as something far off at the return of Christ in the resurrection. And we've mentioned this before in other episodes as we went through various books of the Bible. The last days and the day of the Lord, it can refer to the return of Jesus at the resurrection. Uh, but it can also refer to the coming of Jesus to, or the coming of Yahweh to judge a nation or people group. I mean, we see this many times in the Old Testament. Uh, go to Isaiah 13. It says the day of the Lord, referring to Babylon falling to the Medes. Ezekiel 29 through 30. Uh, go look at that. It's referring to Egypt falling to Babylon in the day of the Lord. Amos chapter 5. Israel will be falling to Israel. Assyria, and that's called the Day of the Lord. You can find multiple examples of this in the Old Testament, and so it's uh, something we have to figure out contextually, which Day of the Lord is he referring to, the final Day of Judgment, or the Day of Judgment upon a people group or upon a nation. I think James is referring to the last days of the Jewish nation, right before Jerusalem is burned down, her walls destroyed, and temple laid waste. You know, Jesus himself, he warned about that very thing. When asked about the temple, Matthew 24, verses 2 and following, he says, not one stone will be left upon the other. And and these things were foretold by Jesus, and they happened. The Jewish-Roman War started in 67 AD, but finished with Jerusalem's destruction in August of 70 AD. So yes, James's audience, they were living in the last days. That is the last days of Jerusalem and the temple of course these things were already made obsolete at the cross of Jesus but James and many Jewish Christians in Jerusalem they still used that place for uh for worship and for meeting and for prayer and for uh for a good purpose while it still stood not in denial of the substance found in Christ and the church but in remembrance of the shadow which pointed them towards Christ and the church. The war was significant to James's dispersed audience because the Jewish elite spread throughout the empire who are the ones oppressing them. Those elite would soon lose their Roman benefactors. And the oppression which these elite showed the poor will be flipped back on those rich elite. It's almost like... uh, A woman, harlot, was riding a beast and then the beast turned against her. (laughs) Uh, Preterist interpretation of Revelation, I tend to favor. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So, verse three, Nick, what does the Bible say about storing up
0: treasure? Is it wrong to save money? You know, I, I think that, first of all, an immediate connection can be made. Uh, from James to his older half brother Jesus. And uh, his teaching on riches in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been making that connection throughout James. Uh, he he really does have <clears throat> the teachings of Jesus stored up in his heart. Um, so the moth which eats, and rust which corrodes. Those are, those are themes which Jesus used to describe the fleeting nature of earthly wealth. And yet he pointed his disciples to something greater, uh, heavenward, where those things uh, can't happen to the treasures that we have in heaven. And so um, in addition to that, the storing up of treasure uh, here in James, he, he does uh, condemn it here, uh, but he does so because, for one, it, it you store it up, and if you don't have uh, the right purpose for it, that actually reveals your priorities um, in, in uh, uh, for for why you're storing it up. The, the priorities of the one who's storing it up are, are revealed through the storing up of that wealth. Um, do you have faith in God, or is your faith in your wealth um The call, of course, is to have faith in God, not in your wealth, not in your clothes, or anything else. Um, That way, with faith properly placed in God, that enables you to properly view those possessions that have been given to you by God. Also, storing up treasure here, as James is talking about, is wrong because you're actually depriving those who are in need of what they need. That wealth that could be used to feed the hungry, instead it just lies unused, rotting away in barns. Clothing, which could have been used to clothe the naked, again, that lies unused and moth eaten. Uh, the gold and silver that could have been used to buy those things which are needful for those who are in need, well, those go unused and they're corroding in a closet somewhere, right? I mean, that's, that's uh, again, James is, is pointing out here and condemning the, the riches specifically here because wrong priorities and also it's not being used to glorify god um and so in that way as as james is talking about here yeah it is wrong to just store up all that money if you're gonna just hoard it if you're gonna be greedy and um and that's wrong Uh, so that's seems to be what's in view here for me alex what do you think
1: yeah i certainly agree with that principle it's uh True, that your priorities, your intention, uh, your ambition, uh, that motive makes the difference as to uh, whether what you're doing is wrong with your pursuit of riches and saving up of money. The, for me, you know, I, I began this speculation in verse two. I'm going to continue it in verse three. And as we get to verses four and five, I think the treasure that they were storing up is an allusion to the real practice of storing up grains in order to drive up the price. This specific historical practice in the first century Roman Empire, uh, that made it hard on the general population that was already at risk of starvation. Here's some facts for you. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. 25% of the population lived a subsistence lifestyle, meaning they had food but barely, not enough to really sustain themselves long-term. They were slowly starving to death. 30% were at risk of subsistence, meaning that if they uh, don't get paid, or if they lose a job, or if someone, you know, dies, uh, who was the uh, money maker of the family, that uh, Whatever that would is that would happen, it would immediately put that family into subsistence. So 55% then of the population had a real daily fear of not having access to food, their daily bread. So food access in the first century and the facts I just listed, um, I found these in research done by a lady named Carol B. Wilson. And she did this research, presented it in her book, which the book, Fair Warning... It reads more like a dissertation, so if you're, if you're not into that, uh, it might, it's pretty thick. But the book is called, For I Was Hungry and You Gave Me Food, Pragmatics of Food Access in the Gospel of Matthew. And she, she presents some very comfe- compelling facts. And so I think that was uh, what was going on in the background of uh, first century uh, Rome, uh, Roman Empire. Uh, any thoughts there, Nick?
0: Uh, No, uh, good connection there. Uh, uh, Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, James writes. Uh, Alex, what would the rich say in response for not paying their laborers?
1: Yeah, again, going off of this possible backdrop, right, that there is uh, manipulation going on with, with holding and storing the grain. Um, this is, in other words, it's, it's a manipulation of the grain market. If you tell your laborers, Hey, you'll get paid after I sell the grain. I can't pay you until I make money. I won't want money until I sell the grain, which by the way, that, that would be breaking the law of Moses. You are supposed to pay them at the day of they're looking forward to that. But you say, ah, I'll pay you after I sell the grain But then what you do is you don't sell the grain for a long time. You store it up in the storehouses, and you wait for the grain price to skyrocket. So you have an extended period of time where the laborers are not getting paid. And you're putting those laborers at risk of starvation. They don't have money to buy food. And so let's say you sell the grain finally. You pay your laborers. Well, now the laborers who survived starvation... They finally get paid, but it's not enough to cover the high grain prices, which the rich artificially had driven up by storing up the grain. And so that is, well, to the, to the rich's advantage, right? You can always hire more laborers. <laughs> and so it's like they didn't care if they died. If they died, good riddance. You don't have to pay them anymore. So very um, twisted uh, you know, practices going on. Uh, not, you know, too much unlike what you would see today in a modern example of, um, you know, Enron or something like that, right? Artificially driving up stock prices or something like that. Hmm. Well, Nick, verse 4, James says that the cry of of the harvesters, of the laborers who are not getting paid, their cries have reached up to the ears of the Lord, of uh, not Sabbath, but Sabaoth. Uh, what does Lord of Sabaoth mean in
0: verse four? Uh, so, other uh, English translations. My English standard says Lord of Hosts. Uh, the NIV says Lord Almighty. Uh, but this is uh, It would have been a familiar um, and frequently used term uh, from the Old Testament that James's audience would have been familiar with uh, in reference to God. Uh, He is the the Lord of hosts, and uh, he's pictured as the Lord of the armies of heaven. And he stands ready to lead his army into battle against the oppressive rich. And the imagery here, I think, also mimics what you find early on in the book of Exodus, where uh, the people of Israel, they're in Egyptian captivity, and they cry out unto the Lord, and he heard them. And uh, that's when things start going and falling into place and Moses uh, is called. I mean, that's because they were being oppressed, God heard their cries and he did something. In a similar way, God hears the cries of the poor here, the harvesters, and he will uh, He will come and he will wage war against the rich uh, yeah. oppressors. Yeah, I think... Uh what was it? One
1: angel in the Old Testament took out uh, how many soldiers in one night? Is that 185,000? thousand? One hundred eighty-five. yeah. So I don't think I'd want to uh, receive judgment from an entire army of heavenly hosts. Yeah. <laughs> so serious business. Well, verse 5, uh, these oppressive rich, they were in the serious business of luxury and indulgence and wanton pleasure is what my translation says. Uh, Nick, talk to us for a second. What does wanton pleasure mean?
0: Yeah, my English standard says self-indulgence, and I think that's uh, <clears throat> uh, that's right. Self-indulgent is a term that is applied uh, in the Old Testament to the people of Sodom, uh, Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. And so this may put into perspective the, the nature and the character of these uh, rich people. They are on par with the people of Sodom. Wow, uh, they are pampered. They deny themselves no pleasure And through all of this uh, lascivious living, they grow fat like an ox or a sheep for, oh, what's that? The day of slaughter there at the end of verse 5. Yeah, right. Yet another Old Testament allusion that goes back to, for example, Jeremiah 12 and verse 3. So their doom, their destruction is certain, and it's all connected to their luxurious self-indulgence. So that's what I found. Alex, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think there may also be... um... An allusion made to Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 in the Septuagint, because James here in verse 5 uses that word luxury and wanton pleasure. The word for luxury in the Greek is also found in the Septuagint, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, which says that once the Israelites came and conquered the Canaanites and settled in the land and they had all of these uh, luxuries, they lived a life of luxury. In that state of luxury, they forgot Yahweh, the Lord their God, and they turned their backs on him. They turned their backs on the law of Moses and on God. And as a result, they were judged. And God brought his judgment upon them.
0: Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So first question, Alex, um, did the rich really condemn and murder the laborers? yeah this is an interesting uh interesting phrasing
1: so not paying the laborer for an extended period of time it puts them at risk of starving to death and once they get paid they can't afford food because the rich stored the grain for so long that the prices are inflated so the rich could possibly get out of paying the laborer because the laborer is dead if the laborer tried to Break into the barns and the storehouses to steal some grain so they could feed themselves. Well, that did happen from time to time. You look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 19, where thieves break in and steal. If those thieves are caught, uh, they'd be put to death. And if the laborer tried to settle things in court, right? let's let's see what civil um, avenues can be taken to to get paid. Well, guess who is already friends? with the Roman judge, the rich Jewish landowner. In other words, the rich essentially, uh, they got to be judge,
0: jury, and executioner. So a follow-up question, he does not resist you. Why do the righteous not resist the rich withholding their wages?
1: Yeah, I think that's because normal means of legal resistance may have been futile, Um And illegal means of resistance would have gone against Christian teachings and submission to government. We see that in Romans 13. And we see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 44 and following. And what example do we have as Christians for this kind of uh, endurance? Well, just as our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, just like he was led like a lamb before the slaughter... And silent before the shearers, so too Christians. We at times have to walk a path of sacred suffering, knowing that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. We see that in Romans 12, quoting Old Testament passage. But James says, be patient, because the one who will repay, the one who vengeance belongs to, the Lord, he is coming soon, very soon. So again, uh, I think alluding to uh, the Jewish-Roman War. So Nick, what do you think about verse 9 then? You have this Christian community that uh, James has been correcting for four chapters now in chapter 5. He says in verse 9, Do not complain against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged.
0: Well, what would they be complaining about, Nick? So we're... In the context of the, that command of uh, here of do not grumble is in the context of those unjust circumstances uh, as opposed to patient endurance of trials and mistreatment. And so just kind of in the theater of my mind, I've put together just a little scenario here, perhaps after a long day of injustice from the rich. Maybe they didn't receive their wages, right? We talked about that. They come home. To friends, to family, or they come into the assembly. They were in the habit of gathering together daily as the church, Right. and they begin to take out their frustrations on one another, on those around them. Um, that could be what's in play here. So that's they're complaining against one another, grumbling against each other. Another idea is that these these brethren were uh, complaining to their. Uh, fellow siblings about how bad they were being mistreated. Maybe these Christians were blaming each other for their persecution. Well, whatever the reason, these Christians were complaining, they were grumbling against one another, literally finding fault with one another. And James says, um, well, uh, was it Joey Gladstone would say, cut it out, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> that, that has no place in our community. Did you just make uh, what a Full you, House you, reference? That was it, a Full House, of right. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, I think, you know, those are all good. Uh, I like the imagery from, from the theater of, of your mind. Um, those are good scenarios, I think, all possible. Uh, another possible scenario is maybe they're complaining about the uh, – burden of having the care for the poor christians in their community right mm-hmm. you get yeah. you get home from a long day of work you go to the assembly uh, you didn't get paid you don't have money you're concerned about your own family and whether you're going to eat in the coming months and then you see that uh, there are christians among you in your community who are asking for a handout who need clothes who need clothing who need food well it was The community, that was supposed to be the safety net, right? The community of believers, they were supposed to protect each other. Their families were protected from starvation by this uh, interdependent support that they had from one another. But that quickly disappears when selfish ambition leads to bitterness against those who are always in need, who are taking what little you have and using it because they can't provide for themselves. And then this leads to uh, frustration and Fear And in fear, we start to unbridle the tongue. And we start to set ablaze um, our fellow brethren, speak against each other, complain against one another. I think that is uh, possible from what we've seen in James so far. And then James goes on and he says, here's an example to keep you going, to keep you steadfast. Remember Job. (laughs) Now Nick... (laughs) I sometimes get irritated when people say remember Job because uh you know God he he gave Satan permission to go and basically destroy Job. So how does how does Job's example encourage them or help them? Didn't God cause Job's suffering?
0: So it seems like James is pointing to Job because like the prophets he remained steadfast during severe trials. And it's interesting, up to this point, James has been talking about patience, now he starts writing concerning steadfastness, from macrothumia to hupomone uh, in the original. And there's some who find distinctions between those two terms. Um, that's possible. Uh, for me, it seems James may be kind of using this uh, these, these terms somewhat interchangeably, almost as synonyms, but um, the... Uh, the purpose, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, James says there in verse 11. That has to do with how he dealt with Job, uh, and that is with compassion and mercy. Uh, you kind of reference the well, you did reference the beginning of the book of Job. Most commentators will point to the end of Job, uh, chapter 42, where uh, you have the reversal of Job's fortune. Again, where the property and family that Job uh, lost is um, restored. He has a long life that's granted to him. And uh, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, says that certainly James does not mean that patience and suffering will always be rewarded by material prosperity. Too many examples, uh, the Old Testament in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and the New Testament, as well, they prove this wrong. Rather, James seeks here by allusion to the Old Testament character Job, to encourage and assure his readers that the Lord is compassionate. How the Lord is, I mean, that's what he says there. He's compassionate and merciful, which is at the heart of um, crumb. The name of it eludes me, but it's, it's the, the famous declaration, the self-declaration of God, Exodus 34, verse 6, uh, about Yahweh. He is compassionate and merciful, and that is repeated. That's a repeated refrain throughout your Old Testament. Psalm 103, verse 8 is another example, but you find it all over. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. So I think that's kind of what James, not so much the emphasis on chapters one and two and, well, you know, did God cause or did he allow or, you know, six, one, half, the other or, you know, I think, and, and most commentators seem to point to the end of Job and that's the compassionate, merciful side that is emphasized there. The Lord gives them even more, gives them back stuff. So could be what James is alluding to here. What do you think? yeah definitely, and
1: uh, you know as you were saying that reminded me of other times where we've talked about you know what's the Christian's reward, especially the martyr, right the Christian martyr uh, his reward for steadfastness is is quite great. you know you get your new body, you go to, to heaven, um, and the Lord will take vengeance on your behalf. Well, part of this verse reminds me of the earlier problem mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13, when James says, Let no one say that the Lord is tempting me. Well, perhaps that was the interpretation of Job's story at the time, amongst at least some of them, that God wants to tempt us to do evil. Look at Job. Uh, God let Satan tempt Job so that he would be tempted to curse God. James, obviously, I think, would disagree with that interpretation. So we see that Satan, he has a degree of sovereignty to test those who are on earth. But, James reminded them in chapter 4, verse 7, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. What Satan intends for our destruction, God reverses and uses for our exaltation. Remember that every time a Christian stands steadfast in trial and more people become Christians, sometimes because of the example of such steadfastness, this takes away more territory from the domain of darkness and creates more sacred space for the kingdom of Jesus. We get this in Colossians 1, verse 13. So if this is a a real spiritual battle that plays out, then Satan, he has free will, he has sovereignty to do evil and to... Test and tempt and God's intention and all of that is for us to overcome and to conquer uh, the domain of darkness that which Jesus has already ultimately done for us at the cross but which we continue to do on behalf of the kingdom through the great commission in the making of disciples so multiple layers going on there with uh, why why would this how God worked with Job why would this encourage them not necessarily an easy question, but uh, <laughs> I think some of that helps to explain. But we have verse 12 now. Um, he says, Brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you too will not fall under judgment. Why would they be swearing an oath in this context? I mean, James is, is concerned about them falling under judgment. That's why he says don't complain against one another, but now he says don't make oaths. Don't swear, just say yes or no. What would be the context for why they'd be swearing an oath about anything? What do you think, Nick?
0: Yeah, uh, so uh, one, very strong connection here to the Sermon on the Mount, Um, uh, at least an allusion, if not a, a restatement of what Jesus says. And matthew chapter five verses thirty three through thirty seven about oaths but um it it could be what's going on here is that uh here are these Christians they're coming out of Judaism um, which taught uh a man might swear with his lips and annul in his heart, and then the oath was not binding and um and so these these Christians maybe they have been hasty in some oath taking and um Making oaths and breaking oaths, so um, th- th- it was it was prevalent in the Jewish culture. Uh, this this swearing. Uh, another one of their uh, rabbi who came along later, but he talks about how men swear daily countless times and then swear that they have not sworn, and so. <laughs> One commentator says, It was a common sin of that day to punctuate ordinary conversation with all kinds of imprecations and oaths used as a device for establishing credibility. So that could be what's going on here, kind of coming out of that. And now we have this, uh, this new kingdom ethic that Jesus talks about. And now here's James reiterating. And it is that Christians should be so truthful that when they say, yes, or when they say no, there's no need for an oath or swearing or pinky promise or any of that, right? Christians keep their word. And to fail to keep your word, that you fall under the judgment of the judge. Uh, So uh, you fall under condemnation. So uh, that could be what's going on here. What I see, what do you think, Alex?
1: Yeah, I'm going to throw this out, you know, just as a speculation for what may have been happening um, again from the theater of my mind. I think that when Christians were borrowing or giving loans to each other, there may have been some sort of oath taken as a promise to pay back what was borrowed. Uh, There's a connection there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 5, where he talks about oath taking. A few verses later in verse 42, he says, do not turn away one who would borrow from you. And So Jesus, and now James, says that such oath-taking is unnecessary in the community of God's people, a community where we simply speak truth and where mercy triumphs over judgment. So do not swear to pay back what you know you may not be able to repay, but simply ask and state your intentions and state your needs clearly. Can you pay me back if I lend you this? Simply say yes or no. And trust that God will work within the community of believers to still meet everyone's basic needs. That's my take on it. Well, Nick, in verse 13, we see that uh, people might be suffering, but they should pray. People might be cheerful, but they should sing praises. How could anyone be cheerful in the midst of suffering?
0: Well, that's that's a good question. Um... Uh, what I see here is, so two different questions. Uh, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? And you have two different um, means to deal with that. You pray or you sing. And so that's how, I, that's how I take this 13th verse is two separate occasions for praying or for singing, whether it's times of trouble or times of triumph, right? Um, you pray and you sing. And so that seems to be uh, what uh, what James is getting at here. Uh, what do you think?
1: You know, you read the book of James, and it doesn't sound like James's audience had a whole lot to be cheerful about just in general. Yeah. Um, however, James begins the entire letter by saying, consider it all joy, right, when you encounter various trials. That's how he starts. So there's something perhaps spiritually therapeutic about singing praises during times of distress, about viewing distress with, uh, I don't know, an optimistic viewpoint, being cheerful that even in trials you will be rewarded, that you can endure, that you will be uh, continually transformed and shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ. And look at Paul and Silas in the uh, Philippian dungeon, right, when they're imprisoned. What are they doing? They're beaten, they're bleeding, they're chained, And they're singing praises to God. And somebody's listening, the prisoners, the prison guard. uh, Somebody's going to be baptized that night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, how can anyone be cheerful in the midst of suffering? Uh, It's a choice. It's a choice, and it depends on your perspective and what you choose to do. So sometimes we need to choose to sing, uh, not because we are not in touch with reality, ignoring sufferings. Like, yes, we're suffering. That's true. That's what's happening. And yet we will choose to be cheerful and sing praises to God. That's not easy, but James says to do it. So Nick, verses 14 and 15, you know, if we had a tough text of the day, this might be it. Because tough we have, text. That's right. Yeah. We have a scenario that has uh, been interpreted in multiple ways and is proof text for different situations. And, But it's not so Clear cut, what exactly is going on here? Is any among you sick? Call for the elders of the church there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So a lot there, and the question starts, who are the sick to be prayed over by the elders?
0: So... The word that is used here for sick refers to either, A, a state of incapacity or weakness, or B, a state of incapacity or weakness caused by sickness or disease. And so the question becomes, what did James mean when he wrote sick? Did he mean just kind of weakness in general, and even like spiritual weakness, or did he mean weakness in relation to sickness or disease. So basically the debate is over whether James meant to call you call the elders when a brother is spiritually weak or do you call him when he's physically weak. So that's kind of the the where the debate rests. So there's two different scenarios here uh, that can play out. And, uh, and it, so here's here's a a retelling of the first option. If a, if this person is physically sick, Okay, they' they're sick with some disease. What James is discussing is a miraculous healing event and so here, here's how it plays out. the sick person is commanded to call for the elders of the church and elders more than one okay possibly the whole body of elders and we'll we'll talk about elders more in a moment but sick person calls the elders they come over they pray over him and that may be like the physical position the person's lying in bed. And while they're praying over him, they anoint him with oil. That was a common practice that you performed on the physically sick. You can see Mark 6, 13, for more on that. And they prayed and anointed in the name of the Lord by his authority. And then that prayer uh, of faith, uh, not only the sick person's faith, but also the elder's faith probably in view here, that prayer of faith will restore the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up or resurrect him. And any sins that the person has committed will be forgiven. And that's, this is a typical understanding of this passage. Most commentators promote this particular view. But there's issues with it, uh, several issues, uh, not the least of which is, uh, I think the most obvious is, the person's sins are forgiven. How does that work, right? I mean, they called him for a physical thing, but now something spiritual is happening. And usually how that gets explained is, well, the the sin-sick soul is afflicted with sickness due to sins that he's committed. Eh. There's a lot of other issues with that particular interpretation, not the least of which is the word that's used for prayer. Here, verse 14, the the word there, any petition that's made to God, pros you, oh my. But uh, verse 15 The word for prayer is yuche, and that's usually translated as vow in the New Testament. So that's interesting. Um, Interesting that James, throughout the book, he's been talking about trials, temptations, afflictions, distress, trouble that Christians face, face in their life. But he's not mentioned sickness or anything like that in the book. And so the insertion here of sickness is a little clumsy, and, um, I mean, there's, there's other issues with that particular interpretation. So what about the other side? Uh, okay, so if this person then is just weak spiritually, spiritually weak person, what James is discussing then is um, a non-miraculous, though supernatural, strengthening event. And so what does it look like? Well, okay, the spiritually weak person is commanded to call for the elders of the church. They come over, they pray over him. And over him may be the language of laying on of hands. Uh, And they anoint him with oil. It's possibly a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And they pray over him and anoint him in the name of the Lord. And that prayer then, as I said, the word therefore prayer in verse 15, the prayer of faith is the word for vow and so that prayer enjoins a vow, probably to be more resolute in holy living. And it's a vow of faith that's uh, placed upon him, and it prepares him for uh, eschatological salvation and um, uh, resurrection, because the verbs here are future tense, for save and for raise him up. And so it could be looking forward, anticipatory of the eschatological realities of final and full salvation and resurrection. And so when the weak person pursues this trajectory, well, the sins that they've been committing, if any, are forgiven. And this interpretation, I think it seems more likely. I think it fits better with the context and the language that James is using. But again, there are issues with this particular interpretation. One is... This isn't the majority position. All right. Most uh, scholars prefer the the first option of a sick person. Um, Also, another problem with this second, uh, spiritually weak interpretation uh, has to do with why would a spiritually weak person call upon the elders? My experience has been they typically shy away from contact with the church and especially with the elders. And then a a third uh, issue with this particular interpretation is well, anointing with oil wasn't really used for this purpose. They'd used it for sick people for sure, but anointing them because of spiritual weakness, eh. So here's a couple of responses to that. First, in response to, well, the majority of scholarship is against this view of this being a spiritually weak person. Listen, majority, majority rules isn't how we interpret Scripture, all right? Um uh, and uh, translations are human; they're prone to mistakes, and also the interpretations can be uh, uh, flawed. Sure. Second, um, yeah, while it may be typical that spiritually weak people don't call on the elders, James is adamant: this is what you do; you must do it, like it or not. And then the third uh, issue with the anointing of oil—it wasn't used for this purpose. Actually, oil was uh, used to anoint. Uh, individuals in ceremonial consecration for example exodus 40 verse 15 numbers 3 verse 3 are a couple of examples of ceremonial consecration and oil being used for that and so it may be that james and his jewish readers they'd be aware of this consecration factor in anointment and that's how the oil is being used here by the elders in anointing the spiritually weak person so uh I'm in favor of the second option there, the spiritually weak person, non-miraculous, though supernatural event that's being done here. Um, my take, and that's a long take, but um, <laughs> Alex, what do you see here? Well, it's a tough text. Yeah, it is.
1: I need some time to break it down. Well, you have, as you mentioned, the physically sick uh, scenario, the spiritually sick scenario, and... Uh, I'm gonna do uh, you know one of my Alex things, and I'm gonna put them both together. I'm gonna to say it's a combination of both scenarios. so here's the the linguistic backdrop that I'm gonna paint this against. If you were reading the Greek of James and you saw uh, the Greek there for oil and for vow you said it's translated prayer, but you're right, it's the Greek UK and it's and it means vow, and so it's not right to translate that as prayer. It should be translated vow. As it is in every other place that it's used in the New Testament. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> so so uh is there an old testament passage that talks both about an anointing of oil and a vow being made? Well there is. You know, you can find them separately as well. Like you can find occasions where oil was used for anointing, like when a king would be anointed, like when the prophet Samuel anoints Saul, and then later David, um, he anointed him with oil. There are occasions in the temple where the priests are anointed, like when uh, Aaron and his sons and uh, the priesthood they are anointed with oil in ceremonial, you know, fashion to install these priests. Uh, at the temple. But the part that throws it off is the vow. You don't have a vow being made in any of those contexts, at least not explicitly. But if we use the Septuagint, there's one verse in the Old Testament where we find both an anointing of oil and a vow being made. And it's in Genesis 31, verse 13, where God refers to the pillar that Jacob set up and anointed with oil in the village of Bethel, where God had appeared to him in a vision. And that's where Jacob made a vow. Jacob's vow was made in the midst of fleeing for his life from his brother Esau. And so Jacob made a vow to uh, trust Yahweh as his God in the midst of his dire circumstance. And so here's my speculation then. My speculation is that James is referring to sick people who have fallen ill specifically because of sin. So they are... uh, physically sick because of their spiritual sickness. Where would I get that idea? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30 says that because they are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner which contextually is actually about uh, them again not caring for the poor Christian among them um, for that reason some have, have fallen sick and Paul says even some of you have fallen asleep some of you have died because of this So, maybe that's what's going on here in James's audience. Some of these selfish Christians, through their sin of partiality and selfish ambition, have, because of that sin, fallen physically ill. Uh, They are then, through the act of the elders, uh, restored. And that word for restore is the Greek sotso, which means save or salvation. Now, sotso can mean to make well or to be made well again. Uh, sotso is used and translated that way in Matthew 9, verse 22, Mark 10, verse 52, Luke 8, verse 36, verse 48, verse 50. Again, where Jesus is making well uh, the woman who is bleeding or the demoniac. And he said, or the, the leper or the blind man, and he's saying your faith has made you well. And so it's a, it's a double take. It's both referring to, you know, their faith leading them to spiritual salvation through Jesus Christ, but also healing them physically. So it can be used uh, correctly in that context. So that fits here. Um, though the phrase, uh, the Lord will raise him up, here in James 5.15, that, that word raise him up, that's one word. Uh, Egero, and um, that is overwhelmingly used in reference to the resurrection. So there's only one place I could find where Egero is used to refer to a physical healing, and it's in Mark chapter 1, verse 31, where it says Jesus raised her up, referring to Peter's mother-in-law, who was lying sick in bed with a fever, and Jesus heals her. So that could fit the situation as well. My speculation uh, would also answer, you know, why this sick person would be in need of forgiveness of sins. It's because there was a specific sin that caused the sickness in the first place. And the oil and the vow would best be explained as a renewal of faith and repentance by the one being healed. So that's that latter uh, explanation you were hinting on, Nick, um, in other words, there there needs to be repentance, there needs to be a decision to trust in God, just as Jacob did at Bethel. And so the elders here, they're treating the uh, repentant Christian as this uh, sacred space that Bethel was treated with by Jacob, that they are anointing him with oil upon a vow that is being made, a vow probably of renewal. Uh, and, and commitment spiritually so it's both miraculous the healing of the sickness and supernatural the spiritual restoration of this uh christian who is recommitting himself to do what is right and both of those things are taking place in this verse and uh that's my long-winded explanation <laughs> for what's going on in james five fifteen. any thoughts there nick
0: no i don't think that's uh that's good stuff it's clear as mud. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, let's talk uh, for a moment about verse 14 here, where, uh, again, the elders are to be called. Who are the elders, Alex? Uh, the Greek there is presbyteros.
1: That's where we get our word presbyter, it simply means an older man but it's used contextually in the new testament to refer to an office that is held by certain christians an office of authority within the church it's equated with the overseer which is the greek episkopos it's where we get our word bishop from in uh, titus chapter 1 verses 5 and 7 and that whole passage about the qualification for elders and bishops and these are men again who hold a specific office within church leadership they're also called shepherds since they were to lead and care for the flock Uh, We see this in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-eight, and Peter uses all three terms in First Peter chapter five, verses uh, one through four. So the elder is the overseer, is the shepherd, and James here calls for a plurality of these men to come and pray over the sick person. And and something that I uh, remembered when you mentioned Mark chapter six, verse uh, thirteen it's in the context it's referring to the to the 12 apostles who were sent out from town to town and uh, what were they doing it says in verse 13 they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them so that anointing with oil the sick people that was in the context of a miraculous supernatural healing of sickness and disease and so when you have the elders here doing the same thing using oil with prayer to anoint and heal someone who is sick uh, both physically and spiritually then what you kind of see is the picture of apostles uh, carrying on um, having the work of the apostles carried on through the authority and work of the elders the 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 bishops and so um, that is sort of I think the, the picture we're supposed to get here in James 5.14 And uh, some people call that apostolic succession. Just the fact that, okay, who's in charge after the apostles die? Well, it's Paul and the uh, other apostles. They were going from town to town appointing elders for this purpose, for leadership to be in place. And another question then for this leadership is that, okay, are these elders? Are they a plurality of men over a single congregation, or they are they a plurality of men over the entire local church that may exist in multiple congregations? What do you think, Nick?
0: Well, that they are to be a plurality. I mean, it's it's evident the right. elders of the church. Right. So, um, but uh, I would lean toward the former, a single congregation. Um, the, the, this would be a plurality of elders over um, the the various congregations to which this epistle circulated. So it would go from congregation to congregation, and each congregation had its own um, uh, body of elders. Uh, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it could go really either way. You could have Um, It's not self-evident in the text. You could have a plurality of elders at each and every congregation, or you could also say that this describes a plurality of elders who, as a single group of men, are over all the collective churches in a given area. And, you know, my guess is that in the first century AD setting – I would imagine that the latter is the case because each congregation may not have even have had a large enough pool of people for multiple qualified elders to be chosen from. And so you end up with a few elders who oversee multiple congregations. However, even if that's the first century context, which I think it probably was, this would not prohibit multiple elders uh, from focusing on a single congregation especially as the church grows throughout the centuries. And so you start having congregations that are hundreds of people large. Now you have a pool of Christians that need multiple elders just at that one congregation. And that, I think, is uh, in line and in harmony with uh, the biblical setting of the first century church. So it could go either way, not explicit in the text, um, but it does make sense one way over the other to me, in, in my opinion. So, uh, any thoughts there, Nick? No, I think that's uh, I think that's right. All right, verse sixteen. Getting closer to the end of the book of James here. It says that therefore confess your sins to one another, uh, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. How do you think the Christians went about confessing their sins to one another? Did they build uh, quiet, dark boxes? to go inside of, to talk to each
0: other? What <laughs> what do you think that looked like? <clears throat> well, I, I think once more um, we see in the book of James, he's, he's very much a pastor, um, uh, probably uh, one of the bishops there in Jerusalem. And so his, his pastoral heart is on display as uh, he recognizes the human condition. He knows how prone even Christians are to sin. And so The habitual practice of every uh, Christian uh, should be to speak the same word as God about sin. That's literally the idea of homologeo uh, confession, to speak the same word as God. And you, you do that to one another, to your fellow brother, your fellow sister. And then you speak a saving word. So not just the same word as God, but a saving word to God for that sin. Pray for one another um, that you may be healed. Uh, So there seems even to be uh, an indication here that this was a a public confession, maybe a public aspect to this, um, uh, because it is ex homologio. So uh, that can come into view here as well. that maybe you have a a private meeting with the elders of the church, um, but then there needs to be a public aspect, a public recognition and uh, renunciation of that sin as well. So uh, maybe what's going on here? uh, What do you think, Alex? You know, that last
1: option you mentioned uh, about the public acknowledgement of sin, I think that's an attractive contextual explanation, seeing uh, because it would see this basically as still referring to uh, those who were specifically sick and being made well by the elders and a vow of renewed commitment. And so a public acknowledgement of this sick man now made well and admitted back into the assembly that would elicit more prayers from the congregation for continued steadfastness uh, within this brother who has now returned, who has now made this vow of commitment uh And that that prayer needed by the greater congregation as a whole. I like that explanation and connecting it back to verse fifteen. It makes things less disjointed in this last little section of James. And that can happen sometimes. It seems like uh, uh, James five thirteen through through twenty, we sort of take each verse as like a proverb or something that has like separate meaning uh, from what came before and what comes after. But I like that explanation because it provides more cohesiveness to this final passage.
0: Well, in the, the end of verse 16 is another one of those uh, proverbial uh, Christian statements. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, but Alex, talk for a minute. Who who would James consider a righteous man?
1: Yeah, so in this context, James, I think, has specifically pointed out um Several among them who would qualify as this kind of righteous person that you want praying for you, for your healing. Um, And I think, you know, those who are righteous in their poverty, he has those in mind. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, God's chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Uh, Those who are righteous in their patience. uh, Chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you have to be uh Slow to anger, uh quick to listen, and uh, so that that righteous, patient person that's somebody you want praying for you uh, those who are righteous in their practice uh, chapter two verses twenty two through twenty three uh Abraham was righteous and justified by faith, and that was fulfilled through his practice of righteous deeds. Um, Those who are righteous in peace, they're peacemakers. Chapter 3, verse 18, the one who sows in peace, um, uh, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, that's the kind of person you would want praying for you, especially if you're this... um, one who was sick because of sin, you were made well, you renewed your commitment. Now you are being readmitted to the congregation. The congregation is praying for you. Uh, You know, the poor Christian who you disdained for being poor and needy and didn't want to help. um, Well, that person is now your greatest prayer warrior who's praying for you, your continued health and steadfastness. And this is the interdependency that I think we see within the Christian community that, we do have mutual uh, beneficial relationships, the poor receiving what they need from those who have more, and yet the poor returning that favor in prayers for uh, their their fellow brother and Christian in Christ. So James would consider, I think, righteous uh, all Christians in a salvific sense, you know, saved through the righteousness of Christ. However, he specifically hones in on those who are righteous in their patience, their poverty, their practice, and in their peace. So those are all P words that I came up with. I want you to be impressed with my, allu- my uh, uh,
0: uh, uh, what's alliteration. Alliteration, yeah, nice. <laughs> That's right. What do you think, Nick? Well, I think you're exactly right. God's power in prayer is not reserved for the elites of the faith. Righteous person uh, is a term that's used to denote one who is completely committed to God, and they are sincerely seeking to do his will. And I think you've made a a bunch of great connections there throughout James of what he has in mind when he talks about the righteous person. You know, there's a righteous person that James mentions is in their
1: own uh, Old Testament righteous prophet named Elijah, and he uses Elijah and Elijah's prayers to compare with James's audience. Why would he use that comparison, do you think, Nick, in verse 17?
0: Well, he says that he's a man with a nature like ours. And so I think um, that would be one of the primary reasons that uh, James compares Elijah with his audience. His nature was like theirs. He's like our nature. Um, In other words, he was human. Literally, he suffered just like us. Um, And uh, no doubt, James is uh, appealing to the sensitivities of his suffering siblings by calling their attention to this co-sufferer um, and his prayer life in particular. Uh, he prayed fervently that it might not rain. He, so he felt pain just as they do, uh, and and he prays just like they do. And so uh, James plugs him in here. What do you think? I think this
1: would have been quite encouraging. Uh, since Elijah was considered one of the greatest prophets of all time. I mean, he even got to escape death and ascend up into heaven and in chariots of fire, right? Yet James says, hey, they're like Elijah too. And that's true. And it's powerful if you believe that. Um, it's not that Elijah was um, not a normal human. He was a man who at times had great fear. Even after the victory at Mount Carmel, he subsequently runs away and hides because of Jezebel, and all she did was send him a mean letter. (laughs) And so he ran, and he had normal fears just like these Christians do. But there's something significant about those who are now in Christ Jesus that we really really are in a different status in the heavenly realms that uh, we really are in this new stage of humanity from those who came before us, even in the faith. And so by comparing us to Elijah, that every normal Christian is just as powerful in their prayer life as Elijah, that's, I think, encouraging. That's an important reminder. Something to believe. Now, Nick, this final statement, verses 19 and 20, his his last words, it just seems very abrupt. It says, "...my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death." and will cover a multitude of sins. No final prayers. No, I'll see you later. No, uh, hey, give my best to so-and-so. None of that. Just this final abrupt statement. Why do you think it ends so abruptly? What is the meaning of James's final statement?
0: Yeah, um, I think those final two verses could be viewed as a summation of all that's come before. James has written to his uh, siblings concerning many problems, um, sinful speech, disobedience, partiality, worldliness, quarreling, arrogance, faithlessness, prayerlessness, cruelty. He has been very practical, been very pastoral as well in identifying uh, potential landmines for the Christian walk. Um, even some landmines that perhaps have exploded in the uh, in the assembly. And so it would seem that um, some of these Christians, um, some of those among whom, uh, to whom James is writing, have fallen prey to these sins. And so, yeah, he concludes this epistle with this very clear call of... Um, well, I guess it echoes back to chapter two. You need to put your faith in action, and and we need to go. We need to go bring our wandering brothers and sisters back because the possibility of apostasy is very real. And so, that, I think that's what uh, is in view here. Um, we we you know we're not missing part of the letter here. All right, um, uh, nothing was lost in transmission. But I think that's just this is James kind of his summary, summary, his summation of what he's written. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, it certainly seems like a mic drop moment here in
1: the letter of James. Yeah. Um, this is James's purpose statement. It's the whole reason he wrote the letter. Some people put their purpose statements towards the beginning of the letter. James ends on it. It's a very inductive way of going about it. He didn't hate this uh, erring group of brethren. He loved them. He wanted the best for them. Um, it says... Mm you know, about covering a multitude of sins. Well, First Peter 4, 8 says the same thing. It says love covers a multitude of sins. James knew that that covering of sin, and it required repentance. It required a course correction. And James gave it to him. That's what the letter was. It was a course correction. It was a warning. It was a reminder. And his ultimate aim was to turn anyone who was in error away from their error so that their soul would be saved from death, so that it would cover a multitude of sins. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants them to want to do. And it says something about uh, our role in our brethren's salvation, right? Do we save our brothers? Do we cover our brothers' sins? Uh, you know, knee-jerk reaction, no, only Jesus can do that, but not so fast, Christian. Uh, what does James says? James says the brother who turns the one in error away from that error he will save that brother's soul from death we do have a role to play in our brother's salvation so it's not passive it's active but it requires wisdom and that's part of james's course correction is reminding them of what that wisdom looks like and where it comes from so that's the end of the book of james nick do you have any final thoughts
0: just, I guess, by way of summary, as we <clears throat> stand at the end and look back, um, I mean, several things stand out. Very Jewish book. Uh, we expect that from a very early document. Again, I expect it. I uh, place the early date on the book of James. Uh, a lot of Jewish Christians, um, very heavy on uh, reliance upon the Old Testament. That was their Bible. It's very simple, very straightforward um and yet it's uh in its practicality, <clears throat> it is also um, uh, very profound and and I think part of the reason for that is because man, as we've seen, very heavy reliance upon uh, Jesus and upon the gospel. Um, I sent a video to you, Alex, um, you can find it on YouTube, um, uh, Joseph uh, Shulam uh, talking about um, uh, early heretics in the, that are, that are her- heretical rabbis in the Talmud. Um, and one of the things that he points out in that video is 10% of evangelical preaching today comes from the Gospels, 10%. Not with James. (laughs) James overwhelmingly relies upon uh, the teaching of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, that there is something about putting your faith into action that is is rooted in this teaching from Jesus. And so I I think we need to, like James, uh, pay careful attention, pay close attention to the gospel and to the words of Christ and his teaching in particular. Uh so so those are the things that that I see I'm taking away. What about you Alex anything?
1: Uh you know I think that was well said and um we'll just leave that there as the final word on the book of James. And we appreciate you diligent uh listener uh to you know be in your Bible. We appreciate you going through the podcast, listening verse by verse, asking these questions with us so that you may, too, understand more about Jesus and the gospel and God's word and our role as Christians on earth and in the church. We, uh, If you find benefit to this uh, podcast, um, Nick, what can they do to help the podcast?
0: You can go into the iTunes uh, store. You can go into... Um the Google Play Music Store. The podcast is available in those places. Uh, search Play. All the episodes are there for you to download and take with you. Leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. If you didn't get enough, James, I've written a commentary and gone in-depth on the book on my website, uh, lifefromthepulpit.wordpress.com, L-I-F-E from the pulpit.wordpress.com. Just in the right-hand tab there, you'll see the tab for James, and you can find the commentary index there. Hey, Alex, if people have a question, uh, can they send it in? Absolutely.
1: Send your questions, your thoughts, your comments to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and thank you for tuning in to uh, the book of James and we will see you next time on another episode of Swordplay.